Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. You will get people to talk to you and open up, sit down for an interview, and provide you with information they ordinarily otherwise wouldn't if you've done your work if you've done your research. So the thing that has always led me to, you know, get information that someone else hasn't or get the interview that someone else hasn't is because I've done the legwork. I've done the research beforehand. So by the time I approach something, I know everything about them. I know who, where they work, how long they've worked for. I know about their family background, what they like and what they don't like. I could even know what they like to eat, what they don't like to eat. Um, what motivates them, what doesn't, what sports they like, who who they got on, get on with, who they don't. I, I do so much work. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. Great to be back with you here as always. Today, my guest is Caro Meldrum-Hanna. Caro is one of Australia's finest investigative journalists. She's also the co-creator of the recently released television documentary series, Exposed, The Ghost Fire Train, and previously Exposed, The Case of Kelly Lane. She's won five Walkley Awards for journalism, including the 2015 Gold Walkley and the Walkley Award for Investigative Journalism for exposing the illegal practice of live baiting in the greyhound racing industry, bringing the sport to its knees. In 2016, she was awarded the Graham Perkin Australian Journalist of the Year for her groundbreaking Four Corners investigation, Australia's Shame, which exposed the abuse and mistreatment of children imprisoned in the Northern Territory, sparking a Royal Commission in record time and making international news. Prior to joining Four Corners in 2014, Carol reported for the ABC's nightly current affairs program, 7.30. This season on Humans of Purpose, I'm committed to speaking with more of our top investigative journalists. They play such an important role in society as our fourth estate, framing social and political issues and influencing and advocating for social change. I think Caro is certainly one of our finest, and we had a great conversation about her work, its ability to drive social change. Trust in our core institutions being very low also was a key theme. We also talk about new forms of journalism and how to build trust with interview subjects to unlock quality information. We recorded this conversation on 18th of March via Zoom, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Caro as much as I did. Well, I am thrilled to be joined by Caro. How are you this evening? Oh, I'm very well, Mike. I'm tired, but we probably all are. I'm sitting here in what has been labelled at work here at the ABC as the cradle of filth, what my <laughs> office is known as. Right behind me here. I don't know if you can see it. Probably not on the wall. So you see Caro's Cradle of Filth. Does it say that actually as the sort of title name bar on the door? It is, yes. There is a name bar on the door. That's incredible. Do like to stay away. The cleaners sort of poke their heads in in fear. Do we need to come in today? Um, but then- oh, just for our listeners who can't actually see this video, Caro actually has a taped, <laughs> it looks like an A4 piece of paper on the wall, scribbled Caro's Cradle of Filth. So she's not lying, my friends. That's right. It's true. And I didn't write that. A former colleague of mine did, a sound recordist. He gave this to me. And next to it, it's a little certificate from the Pirate Council to declare that this shipmate named below will be deserving <laughs> of this special award for the upkeeping of a ship-shaped cabin 
keep swabbing your decks till they're sparkle like gold. You know what? This that is not that is not the way I expected the start of this podcast to go. But I'm so I'm so happy it did go this way. I'm so oh, I'm nothing if not honest. Yeah. I'm hearing about pirates. I'm 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 living the dream at the moment. Um, <laughs> we've got so much ground to cover. I mean, I'm mm. fascinated by the work that you do. I think journalism is has never been more important in Australia. Um, I think the impact of what you do as well to create social, economic, um, human rights, health change um, across all our society is immense. I think a good place to get started might be for you to just tell us in your own words a bit about your journey into journalism and um, to where you've sort of landed today. Well, Mike, I never wanted or planned to be a journalist. So the journey came about uh, surprisingly, I guess. Uh, I was at university. I was studying law as well as communications journalism across the road from the ABC. So I went to UTS. So I, I have spent the last, since the year um, 2000, I have been on the same street and we are now in 2021. I have been on Harris Street. Isn't that crazy? Some things change, some things never stay the same. Oh, I'm just getting older, really. <laughs> so I've been literally on this street, Harris Street, for 20 years and I was studying law journalism and can you, oh, can you hear that? Yeah, yeah, you're good. The email Boom, boom, did you hear? No? No, no, but I'm, I'm pleased oh, to know that you're getting emails at all hours. I am getting emails, yeah. So studying law and journalism, and I thought I was going to go into law. That's all I was thinking about. I wasn't sort of a standout law student, um, but I found myself just absolutely naturally organically drawn to all of my journalism studies. I was doing so much better at them than I was with law, and I think, uh, you know, I'm a, bit of, I'm a creative thinker, uh, I come up with rather oddball solutions um, and I found that that was far more suitable to journalism, that just the push, 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 find a way, find a way around, find a way through, find a way above or under. And I love that pursuit of the truth and the idea that there can be many truths because we all have our own truth, but then the clangor, the bullseye is when you find the proof. So I've always said there's a difference between truth and proof. So I found myself then at university and I was offered a job, an unpaid internship. I don't know if they're legal now. An unpaid <laughs> internship at the ABC in the now defunct investigative unit. So I went to work with a couple of great investigative journos here as a, an unpaid intern and I just fell in love with it. And that was it for me. So I sort of began working at the ABC while I was still at uni and then went into radio while still at the ABC as a casual and quickly um, went over to television for, for documentaries. So it was a very lucky process for me. I was very fortunate. Did you feel like when you went into TV and did documentaries that mm. you sort of found that special place that we sometimes find in our career? Yes. It's like when you find home. It felt like I was at home. Uh, I was very much behind the scenes. I never wanted to be in front of a camera. I was a researcher and that is just heaven being a researcher. It's a, you know, it, it's a real unsung sort of hero, an unsung person of the team. You're chasing the stories, you're finding the stories, you're finding the talent, you're dragging people over the line, you're convincing them to tell their stories publicly, you're finding and chasing the documents. That's the stuff I love, the real mongrel terrier work, the, 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 the juice of it all, the gist of it all. Uh, and then... Um, I then was encouraged to start reporting and I did so over on the 7.30 report 
um, for the ABC. I started actually on Stateline, which is now defunct too. It's a bad run here. (laughs) So I started on Stateline, loved it, and that was short-form current affairs, and then went up to Four Corners for the ABC. Um, And when I started reporting there, I think, yeah, I think I was pretty much, yeah, definitely the youngest reporter there at Four Corners, Um, but... I just absolutely love what I do. I think about it all day and night. I go to sleep thinking about it. I wake up early thinking about it. I spring out of bed every day for it. So I think I'm doing the right thing. Well, if if there was ever any biological or physical indicator, I think you've nailed it. Um, (laughs) With what you do, like the Four Corners stuff, how much say do you have over something that you want to pursue as an idea? Do you put together a pitch and it goes before like a committee or something or um, and even before that, you know, um, how do you know what you're going to be interested in? Does it sort of just come to you? Uh, Look, it's a great question. I I think... There are all sorts of journalists where none of us, not one to the other is the same. We're driven by different things and we all think differently, just as everyone else out there. There's no cookie cutter way to be a journalist. Uh, Some are great at corporate investigations. Other are far more connected to a human or emotional side of storytelling. Some like to look at case studies and technical matter and data. Others are very narrative storytellers. So there's a huge range and spectrum. Um, But for me... Uh, I don't like to be assigned stories, so I don't like to be given a story to tell. Uh, I have always been one to generate a story or generate an investigation rather than be assigned something. I was never good at news, short-form news, so your 7pm news or your radio bulletins. I would, I'd be spending too much time on the but how and why rather than just saying what had happened. Mm. So, um, that was me, just very highly curious, always have been, highly curious. I'm always asking questions, always trying to understand more and probing and pushing uh, around in the dark. So I like to find my own stuff. I don't like to be assigned things because I like to have the freedom and the creativity and have the open mind when I start on something where this investigation could go anywhere because that then really means that you're being led by the evidence and the truth and the proof. Well, I was going to sort of touch on that because I found what you said earlier very interesting about there being um, many truths. Uh, we, we can talk about relativi- mm. relativism and sort of evidence-based sort of ways of thinking about things. But I think, um, you know, I, I wonder in your work, do you ever sort of start out with a hunch uh, with the way something's going to go or feel that you might be on a certain side before you start and then it's tumultuous and you switch or you're validated and 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 is it right to bring those emotions of your own judgment into a storytelling? Well, the emotions are one thing, bias is another. So, um, you, you know, the, the emotions are going to happen. You're trained as a journalist to really try and turn that off because you don't want to be led by your emotion. Um Bias is another where, and it's it has been seen before in journalism, that you can so believe in your theory that you become blinkered to other possibilities and you close yourself off from that. And that, that's not journalism anymore. That's advocacy. So you've got, to, you've got to be strong in yourself with your own antenna, but you've got to work with a team who can tell you, hey, no, you're sliding. 
and bring you back to the centre. So, so you re, you rely on those that are around you. It's it, it's very much not a, a lone wolf pack journalism. You need those other people around you to keep you centred because none of us can do that alone. Um, and you, you know, back on that, I, and I didn't answer your question before when you asked me about Four Corners. What, what's that? What's the process of you know pitching a story? Is there mm. a pity? That also plays into this purpose, this what we're talking about now, because, yeah, you do, you, you go and pitch a story if you have an idea and part of that process is you get interrogated by your team. I haven't been at Four Corners for quite a few years now, so they may have changed their process a little, so I don't want to speak for Four Corners, but when I was there it was very much you'd pitch the idea, you'd pitch the story and you'd get interrogated on it. You'd get interrogated on who are you going to be interviewing, where's the balance, what material do you have? Why do you want to do this? Do any of these people have an agenda? What's motivating them? So you work your way through all of that and you get interrogated on the purpose and the editor and the ethics of it, the, um, the rigour of it, um, the veracity. The public interest is another big thing. You, you've got to be making something that's for the public interest and, and in the public benefit, not for entertainment mm. because you think it's a good idea, not because it's going to rate Ratings are another thing in this modern modern day times. They're sort of pressures. So all of these different processes and people, all these cogs in the machine, are constantly working to pummel and interrogate the material. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty sensible um, array of sense-checking mechanisms in there. Mm. It's um, hard, though, because you, you get pummeled in the process too. You get interrogated. So you- oh, I'm sure. Yeah. And and I sort of wonder, in a way, you know, when, when I watch some of the investigations and the exposés, I'm sort of thinking at the back of my mind, how much is this designed to create social change or political change in, in, mm. in itself? Because at a point, you know, when you run certain stories that they do lead to government inquiries, investigations, um, you know, uh, legislative reform in, in some instances. And, mm. you know, Four Corners has probably got, you know, you can basically telegraph it that if Four Corners is covering something big, something will change politically in the next couple of months if it's really well received. Um, so how do you kind of set out to, to make things knowing that you might be really changing things? Is that sort of like a desired goal or is that sort of just an ancillary outcome? I can only answer for myself and how I approach the work. And I am often asked, and I've been asked this several times very recently in the past week for what I'm working on now, which is a a three-part investigative documentary series called Exposed, The Ghost Train Fire, which is about this shocking fire that occurred at Sydney's Lunar Park in 1979, where six children and a father were incinerated alive inside this ghost train. This mysterious fire had started deep inside this labyrinthine ride. So what I was, and what I've been asked by a lot of people who are reviewing the series and, and journalists who are going to be reporting on it as it unfolds with the revelations, I'm asked... Like, what do you want? What are you trying to get from this? Mm-hmm. And I find it an interesting question because, and I don't want to sound lame here, but I, I'm speaking so truthfully here and from the heart and head when I say I, what I want and think and desire is the least important thing and doesn't even come into the work that I do. I'm so not driven by that, what I want, because it's not about me. It's not my story. I am merely the communicator. And if I am the communicator, then my job 
is to do justice to the people who do own that story and they're the people that are sitting opposite me on camera. It's theirs, not mine. They control it, not me. So uh, that's your job. You're doing justice to that, not to yourself, not to your own goals. Um, and, and that's great journalism. It's not about the journalist. The journalist should never be the story. That is extremely that's well PR, said. you know. Yeah, extremely well said. Um, I'm, I'm sort of thinking a little bit about journalism and how it's funded and how how are we evolving um, in Australia with, with with the quality of journalism. You know, it sort of seems like we've got our, you know, TV stations but podcasts are a new thing now and have been around for a little while and, um, you know, uh, watch on demand uh, is, mm. is, also, is also becoming more and more prevalent. What are we doing well in terms of embracing new modality, modalities of journalism and how can we sort of support that vital truth-seeking function that journalism plays as consumers? I think what we're doing well is, is you know, it's so, e- it's a, that's a lovely question because we're, what, usually the question is what are we doing wrong? What we're doing well is I think we're seeing more citizen journalism through the advent of podcasting and your regular everyday person getting involved in telling a story or hearing a story and communicating one, and I love that. What doesn't work well in my mind is opinion. There has been a big rise in opinion masquerading as journalism, and that's dangerous because what we think and for me it is because what we think and feel as journalists, that's not important. You need to hear from the actual people who are affected. Um, And it's easy. Opinion's easy and opinion is cheap. It's really cheap to make, quick and easy and cheap to make. doesn't cost much. Um, What costs a lot is investigative journalism because it's lengthy, it's risky. Legally, it can be extremely expensive. We've seen some huge payouts in defamation in recent years. Um, You know, the Rebel Wilson, Jeffrey Rush, um, big, big payouts. And the laws, those defamation laws, I mean, in New New South Wales, I think they're under review, aren't they? And and, um, I think there's a, a big push for a lot of change that it's the laws have swung very much to the plaintiff rather than the defendant. Um, so that that's really um, uh, shutting down. It's making journalists fearful because the laws are a bit out of whack. It's 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 certainly believed. So that's that's a problem that's happening. And look, another one is of course uh, the the outlets are diminishing. Our landscape is diminishing. So it's becoming more mon- monopolised journalism. Um, you've got journalism now in this country. I think, corporatized in several aspects um, where you are losing balance. And people, I, I don't think readers and viewers fully understand that, who really owns the news that you're reading and watching, which businesses do, which corporations do. How is that affecting what you're being, what you're hearing and reading and seeing on the, or listening to on the radio? Hmm. Um, that's the other thing too. We're, we're all sort of mushrooms in the dark a lot of the time. Um, if you know you've sort of got to do your research on your journalism to get a proper balanced diet to get the full food pyramid it's it's um so true i mean the, uh, the amount of times that i've struggled with my online news subscriptions and making sure that they're balanced against each other so i get a full picture yeah. but not too partisan in ways that upset me and offend me yeah like, yeah. Know, like it's it's also like you know 
the, the whole art of um, absorbing content that might mm-hmm. threaten your natural state of ideas or affairs. So, you know, to that note, I subscribe to The Australian as well as The Age. And um, I, I yes, try. Yes, me too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I try and make sure that, like, I'm across both point of views. And also, you know, the American publications as well are fantastic. Like, New York Times has always been terrific. But, you know, I was sort of thinking about what you do in the exposed series um, that, you're, that you've been uh, producing and you know, featuring on recently, how many other caros are there out there doing similar things in Australia? I'm not special. Um, there are, you know, I could prattle off a gazillion fantastic investigative journalists or j- journalists, you know, drop the investigative journalists and storytellers in this country. Um, there, are, there are many of us. Uh, you know, particularly regional, there are some amazing journalists out in our regions who are pumping out material that we don't see in in, in the cities, but they're fantastic and, and that they often spark big, big investigations in the metro areas. Uh, in terms of making homegrown documentary, television documentary series, there aren't many of us at all. And yeah. that's because this work, it costs it could, and you need to be working at a place that will give you the time and the support uh, legally and creatively and infrastructure-wise to actually make this sort of stuff. Because, you know, the, the series I'm working on now, the Ghost Train Fire Investigation, it's a, we're, we're a tiny team and we're on a shoestring budget compared to how much money would be spent on a documentary externally overseas or a co-production. So, you know, we're... <laughs> sort of off the smell of an oily rag, but it can be done. And for this, you know, we've conducted almost 80 on-camera interviews, eight zero, and almost 250 phone and research interviews. So it's an enormous undertaking, really absolutely massive to get that full picture. Um, so in terms of how many other people are actually doing that, not many in Australia um, because there's not enough, there's not enough invested in this area. And we know that people love watching and engaging and want to in want to want to sit down with this content. We know that oh, desperately it's popular. Mm. Desperately, I mean, I, I find myself scanning all the networks in the US mm. for the latest documentaries that have come out and downloading yeah. and just gobbling them up. And I wish there was more of it. That's sort of why I was curious. What are um, some of your favourites? So I actually really like Lisa Ling. Do you know her? Yes, I do, yes. So I think she's a pretty amazing example of, um, I forgot what her show's called. And one of the few females. One of the few females. Um, People and, often first reach to, you know, Louis Thoreau. Yeah, yeah. Louis Thoreau's fantastic. But Lisa Ling, Asian female who often goes into very difficult environments mm. and has to be totally non-judgmental but also can give a bit of opinion. I think I think in American journalism there's a bit more latitude to sort of, um, you know, t- takes to the camera and sort of says, I felt this way about X, Y, Z, you know, this got me thinking X, Y, Z and a bit more narrative kind of play. So I think um, they're, they're both terrific examples of how it can be done, but mm. it just strikes me as really bizarre that things like that, that that are so popular and people want them so much and that that sort of desire for truth-seeking. And you've seen the Netflix has really sort of absorbed a huge amount of that market with their big budget productions of courtroom sort of situations and forensic cases and whatnot. Yes. Um, so, so that they they are doing a lot of that. Um, Have you seen um, the, the Jinx? No, what's the Jinx? Oh, uh, this is just a gift I have given you. Yep. 
Do you love a good doco series? The yep. Jinx. It was an HBO series. It's a few years old now. Uh, it's about the, the the disappearance of a woman. It's this man's wife and the incredible tale of his life and his possible involvement in her disappearance and death. It's just a masterclass in journalism and a really unpredictable twist at the end, just this twist that you didn't see coming. And there's another great one called The Staircase. That's what I was going to say back yeah, to you. The stair, yeah. That was my shout back to you, The Staircase. Right. That was yeah. incredible. That was that was really fantastic. A great piece. Of, and, you know, that, that crew, they just embedded themselves. It's simple, really. They embedded themselves with the defendant as he went through the murder trial. And, you know, that's simple yeah. but stuck with it and it's intimate. It's the fly on the wall stuff that I think people yeah. find very absorbing, like, like what I wouldn't give to be a fly on the wall in this room or in this situation. And it yes. creates a massive amount of intrigue and sort of um, voyeurism but not, you know, bad voyeurism, good voyeurism. Mm. Um, let's pivot a little bit. Um, I want to talk a little bit about trust and the trust that Australians have in our major institutions. Mm. Um, I think it's uh, the Edelman does a poll each year that sort of says that, you know, across the board most of our major institutions are declining um, in the amount of people that actually have trust in them, that they're mm. truthful and doing a good job. Um, media has had some mixed results in, in the trust index. I just wonder what, what role can journalists and journalism play in restoring or mediating how we think about and adapt to be a bit more trusting? Transparency is the big thing for, I, I believe in for, for journalists is to be as transparent, be absolutely transparent as possible. So... And also to get consent is another thing. And I, this might sound a bit airy-fairy at the moment, but say for, for transparency, and I, I, I really, it's best if I speak to what I do because I know what has worked and what hasn't worked and where you do fall into the area of, you know, shit, there's a trust issue here. Um, you know, j- journalists can be ambitious. Um, their hunger can can morph into to a bit of into a bit of naked ambition and headline chasing. Um, that just happens wherever you are in any workplace that can happen. Um, but to avoid that, I mean, you think about transparency and what I do is when I ask someone for an interview, say, or I meet with them, they'll often want to sort of like strike this. Some people want to strike a deal with you. If I do this, what am I going to get out of it? If I do this, is am I going to get the result that I want? Am I going to get that inquiry or am I going to get that person arrested who I think has wronged me? Are you going to achieve that? Because I've, I need a good reason to do this. And I, I have through my career heard and listened and watched journalists make a promise that they should never have made, which is they respond, yes. Yes, I, yes. If you do this interview, you will get, I will get that inquiry. If you do this interview, this person will, you know, something will happen, blah, 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 blah. And it doesn't happen. They make the story, they get this person to be involved, and it doesn't happen. So they've made a promise because none of us can make that promise that we're going to get a result for someone. So I will always say to someone, this, this, it's a risk. You might do this and we might not get what you want. Something else might happen. It might fall flat. The, the authorities might not listen. And you've got to be prepared for that. And that doesn't mean you're a failure. And that doesn't mean you don't deserve justice but know that I can't make you that promise. All we can do is be led by the truth and the proof and not what I, what I always bang on about. So I think that's really important so that you set those boundaries uh, straight away, that you, you have that playing field straight away. This is the game we're playing. Um, and the other thing too is to 
to get the consent of people to know what of, what of their story you're including, what sort of story you're really making so that they know what they're getting involved in. Very well said, incredibly well said. Um, so do you ever think about what it's like? Um, I mean, obviously it's something you've thought about before, but being a woman and a powerful woman in journalism, how that shapes your, your approach to stories and subjects and how they might react to you? Like do you get, you know, I'm thinking of a specific example of the okay. – you know, the, the Essendon, Asada, the, the, the Dank scandal yeah. itself. I would just wondered sort of, you know, is it tricky? Do you have to kind of act a certain way or feel like you have to act a certain way around people to get to the truth because you're a woman that you might not otherwise have to do as a man? Hmm. I, um, shit, I'm going to be honest here, no. I never, I, I don't, I don't, I just, I am who I am. I don't change. Whether I'm whether I'm approaching a man or a woman for an interview, I, I honestly I don't see gender, and I'm not intimidated. Um, I know that there have been times when I have felt that someone is trying to intimidate me, and it's it's actually quite explicit, and it can be threatening. It's not something I respond to, and it's not something I find that uh, for some reason I don't I don't get that fear. I I, I don't have a, an afraid switch, um, which can work well for you, but it also can mean that you push very hard um, and you can upset people without quite knowing it or anger people because you're just trying to get to get to the end of something or understand something. Look, I honestly don't. I don't change my behaviour. I don't, I don't manipulate myself or contort myself to uh, fit around someone else, what I think they like or don't like. Um, and, and I don't use anything... You know, I, I don't know if you're trying to suggest like using your sexuality or your femininity to get something. I don't do that either because I was more kind of thinking that um, might powerful men dismiss you more as a as a female journalist mm. because of you know stereotypes and whatnot that they only feel that they can be at the table with another powerful man kind of trope. Mm. Has that has that kind of impacted you at all? Well, look, you know, you you use the Essendon. Uh, story as an example and at that time I was working at 7.30 and I had a very low profile. I was just really a cub reporter. I'd been researching for years and behind the scenes. So I wasn't, you know, powerful in that uh, as what we understand that word to mean. I wasn't that at all. I didn't have a huge reputation. Um, so I didn't need that power then. Maybe it worked, you know, flip side, did it work for me that I wasn't powerful or well-known or have a reputation? I don't know. Maybe we'd have to ask the people in the story or for that. Um, but I think you're going to, you will get people to talk to you and open up, sit down for an interview and provide you with information they ordinarily otherwise wouldn't. If you've done your work, if you've done your research, so the thing that has always led me to, you know, get information that someone else hasn't or get the interview that someone else hasn't is because I've done the legwork. I've done the research beforehand. So by the time I approach something, I know everything about them. I know who, where they work, how long they've worked for. I know about their family background, what they like and what they don't like. 
I could even know what they like to eat, what they don't like to eat, um, what motivates them, what doesn't, what sports they like, who who they got on, get on with, who they don't. I, I do so much work to figure out who they are before you approach them because you you want to be ready, you want to you want to be confident and ready, and that doesn't come from a lot of spontaneity in this line of work. It's so a perfect lead into my next work. Yeah. Perfect lead into my next question, which is. Can you tell me a bit about who who have been some of your most difficult interview subjects? And you know, you might not need to name them per se, mm. but just situationally. And how do you do you have techniques to unlock really difficult types of subjects? Mm. Okay, so the first one was what are some of the the more difficult interviews? Uh, well, that there are always people in positions of authority and power. Uh, because people in positions of authority and power often have an ego that could inhibit them or they work for a department or a business or government or police where they've been trained to not open up. So that's something that you come up against and it's really common. You know, there's media training now. They are trained to deflect questions. They're trained to, to control the narrative. They can be trained to embarrass and humiliate you so that you lose your confidence and you stop asking those hard questions. People can be trained to overwhelm you and snow you with materials so that you can't remember your next question or you're thrown off into a different area and it's so hard for you to find your way back. They create a snowstorm. But that's usually the the, the unifying theme. They're in positions of power and authority and they don't like to be, they don't like to be exposed. They don't like to be questioned about how they've conducted something. Um, and they've, you know, they've got skin in the game. Uh, techniques to unlock that, it's always you have to have done your work. I'll sound like a broken record. You have to have done your research. So if they're throwing facts and figures at you, you've got to know the other facts and figures to contradict them. You, you, you would have had to have done the sums to undo them, to show that, well, that doesn't make sense. They're going to talk about one report. You've got to have the other report that they would never think that you have. Um, so it's all about that work, all about that background work. But then sometimes when it's a a very human interview or an emotional interview, really simple questions like how are you feeling? How does that question make you feel? And observing their body language, I'm noticing that you're sweating. I'm noticing that you're you're flushed. I'm noticing that you're, you're, you're rubbing your hands together a lot. Would you like to have a glass of water? Do you want to stop? Do you want me to ask that question a different way? So, so it's changing that tempo and that pace because that's really human. It's really hard to answer questions on camera. It's very unnatural doing cam- particularly interviews for on television. So you, often people will just clam up because just because of the camera. They want to be there, but the camera can be very intimidating. So you've also got to get to a point where they're comfortable finally to be able to just speak without thinking about how they're looking or sounding too. So there's, yeah, there's lots going on actually now that, I, now that I'm talking about it. There is a lot going on. You've given people some good examples of what they can do though. I found that really interesting actually shifting from the rational line of questioning to the emotional uh, yeah. is very clever. Tempo change I think is very clever. I think what you said about really researching and knowing everything about the subject um, mm. makes a whole lot of sense because you have this kind of tactical advantage when you go into it. But also to be prepared 
to say and acknowledge I'm wrong, to say I don't know if I have that right, or to say, wow, I've never thought about something like that. You know, we're not, it's not always about an interrogation. I'm not looking for a gotcha moment. I'm just looking to understand so that everyone I know who's watching this is going to understand and get something useful from it. So, yeah, I, I try and get away from that area, but also I think to just be kind. It's just, it's a kind thing to do to ask, how are you feeling? What's happening for you? Have I got that wrong? Do you want to tell me something more? It can open up a whole new area and a really authentic one. Really great skills for life as well beyond just interviewing, I would say. Yeah, it's listening, hey. Yeah, listening skills, active listening mm. skills. Mm. Who are some of your favourite journalists and people that you sort of look up to in the space? Oh, it's easy. I can, I'll can. i just say, number one, straight off the bat, Liz Jackson, um, the late Liz Jackson. She, I think, is the finest reporter of her generation and storyteller. Uh, she... She had, I think she had a legal background too. I was actually a researcher for her for several years during her final years at Four Corners. She was a, res, a, a reporter there. She'd been at the ABC for decades. She is just, fen, she was phenomenal. So I, anyone listening, look up Liz Jackson and watch her story. It's like a beautiful one for Four Corners was Who Killed Mr Ward. It was the death of an Indigenous man in the back of a paddy wagon um, where he basically overheated and boiled to death in the back of this paddy wagon. Um, but her reporting was just superb, absolutely superb. And it, she was forensic. That's why she was so great. She was absolutely forensic. And she interrogated and pummeled and interrogated and pummeled everything, looking for the weak spots. You know, some journalists don't like to find the weak spots. So, you, can, you know, some like to sort of hide them. Look over here. This is the better juicy stuff. Um, but she would she would open up those weak spots. She'd acknowledge them. And that made her reporting stronger. Really, I'm sensing a, a real overlap between people who have studied law and that enjoyment of the rigour and forensic side of yeah. investigative, not necessarily people who became successful lawyers, but some mm. of the craft of um, not taking anything as gospel, you know, and yeah. really seeking the truth. Yeah, yeah. So, look, I think... I'm actually, you know, I'm just going to leave it at Liz Jackson because that's how special I think she is. Can you please give our audience a bit of a plug for uh, your show that you're currently producing? Yes, well, right now as as we're speaking, we are just finishing off the final episode, the finale, which is episode three. Uh, but it's all about, it's called the Expose the Ghost Train Fire. You can catch up on the first episode on iView, which has got a huge uptake on iView. Um, it's the, I think it is by far the hardest thing I've ever worked on and it's going to be hopefully the most rewarding for those involved to work on. Uh, we're talking about an iconic piece of land, Luna Park in Sydney, where seven people died on a ride and no one has been held to account and the police within half a day closed that investigation into six children and a father who burnt alive in this ride and told the country, told the world, nothing to see here, this was an electrical fault, just a terrible accident, electric's gone bad. And what what we've exposed is something completely different and the questions go right up through to the upper echelons of power and serious um, allegations of, of corruption. If that's not the best teaser I've heard all week, uh, then I'd be a lying man. That was that was sensational, and I hope everyone. Oh, I don't know about that, but you know what? The the 
most of all, these families and these people are so bloody courageous. You've got people coming out of the woodwork after 42 years who tell us that they have feared for their life for decades to say what they really heard and saw that night and they're sitting down in front of a camera and doing it finally. So hats off to them all. Carol, this has been a fantastic conversation. We'll wrap it up. How can people connect with you and learn more about your work? Oh, how they can, can they connect with me? Jump on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, that's about it. Tell, tell people your handle. Low, I keep a pretty low profile, <laughs> as you can tell. I mean, I'm sure people will be, oh, you can find me on Instagram. I don't. My Instagram is private. Um, my handle, here we are. Look, look, look myself up. This is a bit embarrassing. I'm, I'm not good at the self-promotion, Mike. My handle is at Caro Meldrum, C-A-R-O-M-E-L-D-R-U-M. No yep. relation to Molly Meldrum. Thank and you. don't be fooled by any hyphens either. They can be tricky on uh, social yeah, media. Yeah, no, I dropped it for my handle. The hand is gone. <laughs> awesome. So good chatting with you. Um, stay on the line and we'll just have a bit of a debrief. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.